Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people and the planet. For April, we're focusing on the topic of race and childhood. Unfortunate events during the past months have launched a movement of hope against racial injustice in different parts of the world. The call for change is important, and the existing climate of racial tensions and protests may be alarming, confusing, and stressful for our youth. Research shows racial justice can affect interpersonal relationships, education, economic status, and institutions of law, having significant effects on the physical and mental health of children of all races. Along with social and economic factors, discrimination plays a major role in health disparities, often leading to low birth rate, chronic disease, and mental health challenges in minority children, teens, and young adults. The American Academy of Pediatrics describes racism as not only a deeply rooted historical construct that has expanded into health, education, and legal policies of today, but also a socially transmitted disease passed down through generations. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Camille Hernandez-Randor, who's an associate professor at the Department of Sociology and an academic coordinator of Caribbean Studies at Ryerson University. Her areas of expertise are Caribbean studies, Caribbean tourism, transnationalism, second generation, African-American traditional religions in the Caribbean, racism in Canada. She's also the writer, director, producer of Posting for Peace a short documentary on youth, social media, and violence in Trinidad. She's the author of the e-book, Introduction to the Caribbean, Diversity, Challenges, Resiliency, and Higher Education and the International Student Experience, which appears in the publication, International Encounters. Let's get into the interview. Racism is rooted in different aspects and systems of life, which can influence the opportunities afforded to different populations. These influences have a great impact on children since they are innocent bystanders of what happens to their adult parents and families. Today, I will be discussing the role race plays in childhood with Dr. Camille Hernandez-Randor, an associate professor of the Department of Sociology and academic coordinator of Caribbean Studies at Ryerson University. Her focus on Caribbean studies allows her the insider's view into the complexities of race, since most of the Caribbean population is of a mixed background. Her research interests include Caribbean cultures, identities, Afro-Caribbean religions, second-generation identities, and racism in Caribbean peoples in Canada. Welcome, Dr. Hernandez-Randor. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we get into the questions, what inspired you to focus on Caribbean studies? Uh, my background. Uh, I probably would not have ever gone to university had it not been for um, an acquaintance of mine who told me that there was such a thing as Caribbean studies. And that is what hooked me. That's when I said, oh, maybe I can go to university. Um, And once I actually did enroll and started uh, doing my undergraduate in specializing in Caribbean studies, that was it. I was hooked. I loved it. I was you know, in love with the material. I was, uh, it was really important to me that I could learn about myself and my history. It had been challenging for me growing up 
as a mixed race um, Caribbean Canadian person growing up in Canada, it was it was difficult. And this was so inspiring to me. It was so important to me for me to be able to actually go to school and learn about myself for the first time. Wow. Um, that is definitely um, that's different than uh, what I would have uh, what I would have thought, especially when somebody becomes goes all the way to become a, a professor. Um, so that is uh, so you really have a, a true passionate uh, for what you do, and then um, I guess a direct understanding, which is uh, perfect for um, our discussion today. Um, and uh, being uh, of Caribbean background myself um, and uh, coming uh, from a family that is uh, uh, very, very, very mixed, I'll say, <laughs> even <laughs> myself, um, I, I understand um, uh, the role that um, just within my own family, I guess, even how, I guess you would say, I guess we'll call it, I'm not a biologist, but I guess how um, races um, end up uh, physically um, expressed, uh, meaning how you look from the outside, um, uh, play a role even in how my own family, and I know from um, uh, knowing other uh, families from the Caribbean, um, play the role of how uh, people are perceived um, within the family and um, society. And so um, I know that then that, uh, just because it plays out in families, definitely has to be playing out in society as well. So hence why I thought this topic um, would be extremely important. So I was saying that, that mm -hmm. actually has really little to do with with race i mean the amount of genetic material that, that that determines our skin color and our hair texture and these kind of things is so so minute and yet in certain times in history and in certain societies we've blown this thing up into you know such an important issue this the, the difference in how we look as people right so i think that's the first thing that i guess i want to say around race is that it's not so much the fact that we do look different and we have different eye shapes and eye colors and hair textures and so on. It's that the uh, the value that was placed on that in particular points in time, in particular historical circumstances, for particular reasons, is the only reason that we as human beings pay attention to that. So you can have prejudice and discrimination occurring in societies where everybody looks the same, you're going to use something else. You're going to use religion. You're going to use the way that you talk. You're going to use something else. And then, of course, it's very simple to do that now in societies where people actually don't look the same based on skin color, for example. And that's another way to discriminate. So, you know, it doesn't, um, I guess what I want to say is we could easily get over this if we wanted to. <laughs> but yeah. what we're talking about is, you know, an over 500 year history, at least in this part of the world that came out of European colonialism that we still have not resolved. We have not gotten past that. And that's why we're still stuck here in this idea that somehow the way the, the, these particular ways that we look different, right? For example, we don't spend a whole lot of time uh, worrying about eye color, you right? Know? but we spend a <laughs> whole hell of a lot of time. Yeah, like we, you know, as the, I forget what the woman's name is, but there's a famous woman, you know, who always does this exercise, all the blue eyed people over here, all the brown eyed, you know, people mm -hmm. over here. And she's trying to point out, you know, the, the how that's how we can make these little things important. Um, so because we have this particular history that's based in the history of the transatlantic slave trade, 
of uh, African slavery, of indigenous genocide, all of these things that were based in European colonialism, where people who were white skinned, quote unquote, white skinned, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're dealing with people who were darker skinned. And so we, we developed, or, you know, we as human beings developed this particular idea about race. It could have been something else, right? And, and in the same way that this was developed is the same way that this could be dismantled. Yes. Now, this leads me, I was going to ask another question first, but because we've, um, uh, because you brought up something in, important, um, that uh, race is a, such a social construct. Um, yeah. I guess uh, from your own perspective, I don't know uh, if, if this is necessarily a question that you can answer directly, but um, uh, from your observation, because you are working with uh, um, young people, and um, and uh, have you seen, I guess, um, I know you're working with university students, but um, even uh, maybe children you've noticed, you know when they first start um, noticing, I guess, these differences. Is it something that, um, I guess, you think they notice right away or with time? I think it's with time. Um, hmm. I'm not sure of the exact age, but it, somehow it seems to, to me to be around four or five. And, and usually that's the time that a child goes off to school. So um, prior to that, you find that usually children, that's the last thing that they're, you know, they don't, it doesn't occur to them that people mm -hmm. look different. They don't really comment on it. They don't, they don't notice it. And then something happens. So, um, you know, I'm not entirely sure if that's, maybe when they go off and they start mixing with other kids outside of the family circle, uh, you know, whether like daycare or, or kindergarten or whatever, but there comes a certain age when this difference, and I think this is also true for gender, right? Mm -hmm. um, that children start to notice, oh, you're different than me. You're different from me because of this or that, or, you know, um, and then there's prior to that, this just kind of age of innocence where, you know, difference doesn't exist. And then suddenly it does. And then and then maybe or or maybe not that that's somehow important to that child. Um, and then, of course, that's when we can kind of start to see the socialization part. Like, what was this child taught something in their home of origin about race? Is the teacher doing something? Are, you know, are they intervening here? Are they going to say something if the child, you know, or children are discussing race in a particular way, or they're using race as a way to maybe hurt another child? Um, so all of those things sort of come into play. It, but it does definitely happen at a certain age and not prior to. Right. And then I guess one of the big things is uh, that people probably ask, and I, I will say people that um, uh, sometimes want to uh, take, I guess, the, the colorblind side of, of things. Um, I guess, how much does a child's race, would you say, have an impact on their future? Well, it depends what their race is, right? <laughs> well, I, right? I well, uh, well, yes, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess that 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 is, I guess, uh, the answer within within it, itself, in a way, is that yeah, I yeah. guess is it um, is it just like people that it uh, that it has an impact just uh, as uh, just as we are on a color spectrum on the planet that the impact has that uh, I guess is the impact the same as the color um, spectrum. 
Okay, I, I I'm not sure what what the call. Okay, that's meaning mean meaning meaning right. meaning if you were uh, from if you can be the whitest white to the darkest dark, do you have uh, does that um, play out as um, you know the the lighter that you are, the easier or harder your life is, the darker you are, the easier or or, or um, harder your life is. Does it? Um, that, that, that's guess, only de yeah. that's only dependent on if you're in a white supremacist society. And if you're and if you're operating in a society in which there was European colonialism, or if you're in a society where the impact of, for example, American imperialism through culture, through television and cinema and and internet and advertising has that kind of an impact, right? Again, like it's not the race that's inherently the issue; it's racism. It's the it's the it's the values that are placed on appearance that that are, that's com completely determined by the society that child's growing up in right so the child could grow up in a society where dark skin is highly valued it's considered beautiful it's considered gorgeous so that's a non-issue then right mm -hmm. um so th that's why i'm saying it's completely context specific right where is this child growing up what are the value what are the ideas around race what are the values placed on dark skin light skin those kinds of things and also is this child being supported are they in a supportive system so that they can counteract the kinds of messages that might be uh there in that society all of these things have to be taken into consideration I guess then, um, if we are looking, because you know, and I, I could be just because I am here in a in a in a the U.S. and so mm -hmm. um, you know we have, uh, uh, I guess, been um, put into kind of a, a bias mode of how we how we think. Um, I guess, uh, and even things that I read around uh, around the world, um, I almost uh, think that uh, racism racism plays out in on almost uh, in almost every country to to a degree um, when it comes to uh, maybe uh, darker skinned individuals just because we are now in a society uh, or I would say the the information age um, um, so I don't know yeah. I guess uh, I guess uh, one of the things is uh, uh, not knowing I guess are there are there societies that um, that this is not um, uh, being pushed upon, I guess. Yeah, yeah. and I, I hear what you're saying because we are in an age now where particularly, okay, I'll, I'm just thinking of maybe remote areas of the world, okay, mm -hmm. where, um, you know, non-urban areas, rural areas, more isolated communities and so on, but you still, you're going to find advertising is infiltrating, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to find television is infiltrating. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that uh, these kinds of messages that predominantly have come out of the United States for the past, oh, I don't know, since like the 1930s, maybe. So we're almost in a almost 100 years now, right, of these mm -hmm. messages that have been spread around the globe about what's considered beautiful, what's considered valuable, you know, what's considered bad, what's considered good in terms of people's appearance. Yes, those messages have been, you know, bombarding the planet for some time. But the degree to which uh, people actually um, take on those ideas and, and um, um, sorry, my brain is 
stop <laughs> you know and um take them take them to heart right mm-hmm. is is different around the globe so for example i'm thinking of a place like india which is a huge very diverse place right mm-hmm. yes we know that there's ideas there about dark skin and light skin we know that there are people there who are totally into bleaching you know bleaching mm-hmm. their skin we know yes. that bollywood only shows a particular tone you know of people's skin like you have to be very very light to be in a bollywood film and if you're at all dark of course you're going to be an evil character or a servant <laughs> yes. or something else right yes so yes. so but but we have to also consider that the british were there for you know over 100 years a very very long time um you know perpetuating those kinds of ideas and some people would even argue even before that there were things going on between the aryans and the dravidians in india and the aryans were lighter skinned and they came from the north and the dravidians were dark and they were from you know so some of these ideas about dark skin and light skin have been embedded in societies for centuries Right. So mm-hmm. that is something, you know, that's going to be very difficult to dismantle. At the same time, we can look at societies where maybe there was a lot less infiltration of American imperialism. Maybe colonialism was not, you know, didn't leave its mark to the same kind of extent. And that's why I'm saying, you know, I don't want to say that the entire, I, I guess maybe that's my aspiration is that the entire planet has not been consumed by white supremacy. I would like to think that, that there's places where people can still say, look at this beautiful child, how gorgeous and dark their skin is, or, you know, look at the shape of their eyes. Isn't that fantastic that this child was born with, you know, not round eyes or whatever the case may be, or that, you know, look at (laughs) this lovely, tightly curled hair. Um, You know, that, might not be the stories that we're hearing, but I believe that there are still societies where people have been able to hold on to some kind of semblance of pride in non-European appearance. Yes. The only and, one... and, and that, that might be the minority for sure. For sure. But yes, as you were speaking, actually, the only one that I can that came off the top of my head that maybe has not been um, uh, and, you know, I'm not a history expert, but I believe Ethiopia is the only one in Africa that wasn't colonialized. So, yeah, it, well. briefly, I mean, the, the Italians tried really hard and uh, they I think there was a moment there that they, you know, but but yes, they always say that Ethiopia was the one place that, that held out in Africa. Um, and for sure. And and that's what I'm saying. I think it's important that we do seek out those very specific histories where people resisted and they resisted um, European domination and they resisted all these kinds of ideas about, about their own, you know, the, their, that they were not valuable, um, that there were places in the world and there are places in the world where people have something to turn back to. They don't just have this distortion that came out of colonialism, hundreds of years of colonialism. I think you know, I think it's different and I know less about this, so I don't really want to talk too much about that side of the world, right? Like mm-hmm. Africa and Asia, because that's not my expertise. Mm-hmm. What I understand a lot better is the Western Hemisphere and what happened to us in this part of the world because of that European domination and how in, in, you know embedded that is in the societies that we live in today, like the United States, like Canada, like Caribbean societies, Latin American. You know, we're, it's messed up. 
Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. Like it's really, you know, and I, like I said, I'm much more familiar with that history. So I, that is very clear. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I maybe, and maybe that's something that, you know, I would like to research more, but I think there's parts of the world on the other side of the world where maybe European colonialism was not able to totally dominate and infiltrate in the way that it was in this part of the world. Yes. So in all of this, um, all these, uh, the experience, especially on uh, the West, in the Western Hemisphere and the children that grow up um, uh, on this side, um, how do you think that uh, racism is affecting uh, these children's development? And, you know, I think you said it in the introduction, racism, the way I just describe racism to my students is it, it affects you from the, not just the cradle to the grave, it literally affects you from the womb to the grave, right? Because racism can affect the prenatal care that your mother gets. So think about that, right? Before mm. you're even, uh, you've even arrived on the planet, the prenatal care or lack thereof that your mother gets, the way that she's treated when she's pregnant, the kind of birth experience she has, it starts there, right? Yes. And then and then we take it into, you know, infancy and what kind of experiences did you have as, a, as an infant, as a child, when you go to school, as you get older, um, you know, and then your parents, if your parents are racialized, what kind of experiences of racism are they having? What's what's going on there? We know that there's links between racism and poverty. And once we start talking about poverty, we know we have to talk about health. We have to talk about stress. We have to talk about disease. We have to talk about crime because people who are poor tend to live in more dangerous neighborhoods. They tend to be surveilled more by the police. They have more um, interactions with the, the justice system, you know, and we can just go on and on from there. So if we look at a person's entire lifespan, which racism can also shorten, you know, mm -hmm. it's it's enormous. It is absolutely enormous. And I think that's, Sometimes people, when they hear racism, they're like, oh, name calling, you know, or um, maybe a physical attack or, uh, you know, you didn't get that job or something like that. But it's not just that. It's compounded. It's compounded. And then it's the everyday microaggressions. It's just walking through the world. Like, I mean, you're in the United States. I don't have to tell mm -hmm. you. Right? Yes, Breathing yes. while black, walking while black, <laughs> sleeping while black, driving while black, living while black <laughs> yes. is, is yes. you know, like that affects your life chances. Period. Mm -hmm. Period. Just being black, breathing and standing while black. is That's all you have to do. You just have to be black. And it's like lessens your life chances. I mean, what the hell? You know, um, yes. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really, you know, I'm really interested. I'm a, I'm a bit of a TikTok fiend, right? I'm kind of getting yeah, into yeah. TikTok a lot. I really do like it because it's it's just such a huge platform. But I'm really fascinated by the, there's this whole stream of TikToks now of Black Americans who are like, get me the hell out of here. And, you know, I'm, I'm living in Mexico. I'm living in the Netherlands. I'm in New Zealand. I'm in, like Black Americans who are, who are exiles mm -hmm. and they do these TikToks saying it's great you guys need to get out of there <laughs> like <laughs> like i can i can just breathe you know i walked down the street and the other day a police car was driving behind me and i didn't have to panic i i, I knew they weren't coming for me 
you know <laughs> it was yeah. it was very telling very telling so yeah that's yeah so in in this i guess one of the the big things and you know i'm of course uh not in tune so much with uh canadian um tv but here in the u.s we've uh, one of the hot topics has been critical race theory. <laughs> oh my goodness! I don't know where they got? Why did these people find out about that? That they had to come after it with pitchforks? I'm just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so critical race theory has become like a the you know oh, yeah. um, uh, a hot topic, evil word. Um, it's, it's, and... it's, it's, it's the new communism. That's what I call it. <laughs> the way Americans, yeah, the way Americans used to like freak out about communism, like the commies, you know, the commies are coming and the commies and that's now the critical race people, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, because I mean, who cares about communism now, right? It's the Ruskies <laughs> and like, no, who cares? So it's critical race people. It's incredible. It's absolutely mind blowing to me that um, this has become, you know, the great evil that has to be stopped. Um, yes, and and once you were you, one of the things when you were talking, and um, and it's just I guess because um, uh, what do they say that you become uh, numb once you are uh, when you're so used to a a situation is that, you know, yes, you're right. When, uh, you know, the minute that um, I, or I think most people think about racism, they think about like name calling or, you know, um, or uh, being made fun of or something like that. But racism mm -hmm. is, is uh, you know, much, much deeper um, mm -hmm. than, uh, than people realize, I think. Um, and so I think that that is the, the problem is that most people don't realize how deep it really is. Um, because now when I think about it and I think about when people uh, I talk to sometimes get irritated about racism, they they almost think of it like, um, uh, it's kind of like the school bully on the playground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, if you are the unfortunate victim of the school bully, right? Um, all your friends tell you, or if you have friends, because if you're too bullied, you sometimes don't have friends. <laughs> right, right. Um, but if you do have friends, they tell you, you should just stand up or just don't even pay attention to it anymore. Yep. Um, sure. And so I think that's how people see racism. Like they're tired because they're just like, okay, so you're being bullied. Just ignore it or tell the bullies to stop. <laughs> right just get over it just get right over it. right that. because that's yeah. what you would do if somebody was like a bully and stealing your lunch money right. <laughs> or go tell somebody go tell the right. teacher and that's assuming that the teacher cares right the teacher right. has the power to do anything right Right. But, but um, yeah, but this is, you know, but racism is much deeper because it, it literally yes. is the, um, you know, it, it, it knits the the way our society is put together you know it, it it's mm -hmm. um uh and i think right now in the world because of everything that we have went through um 
uh, all these traumas, that's what I'm calling all the things that are happening during this pandemic. Uh, We have so many traumas, Um, you know, um, even like I personally, you know, I only tune in every once in a while anymore because you can only take so much bad news, I believe. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, that this, you know, this now, I guess, um, it makes sense, um, that we are now having, uh, this racial er eruption. Um, it's, uh, I guess it's, it just adds to, I guess, the, the continuous trauma, um, of this experience of this ongoing pandemic. And so I guess that is leading to my next question in, uh, I know I a little bit answered it, but I wanted to get your perspective of since the world is becoming more of a melting pot because we are literally a, a touch of the finger away from each other. Um, why do you think the rise in the focus, uh, why is there a, a rise in the focus of race? Yeah, that's really interesting, you know, that you raise that because I've been thinking the same thing myself. Um so I think I think the first thing that I want to say about that is what I'm kind of seeing on a on a global level and maybe on a on a on a history level, like in terms of the history, is that these things are dying, right? Like um, I've watched with great fascination the the absolute intense divisions around these vaccinations. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way that vaccinated and unvaccinated have become the new uh, determinants of, you know, what side are you on and what do you represent? And and to me, that could have only happened because things like race and gender and um, ability um, are all kind of dissolving. It's like it, we've come to a point where where there's been pushback finally, from people, like from 2020 with George Floyd and and Black Lives Matter and all of these things exploding and the the statues coming down that have been there for hundreds of years and so on. To me, I think people who were really invested in that and keeping people apart on the basis of race panicked. This is is awful, right? It's like, oh my God, we we can't use race anymore to divide people. And then, you know, of course, For some time, we've had transgender people speaking out and saying, you know, we have to dismantle gender and now we've got pronouns and everybody's using pronouns and, you know, it's becoming more normalized. And then we've got same sex, you know, couples and and families and whatever. This has all been going on for some time as we sort of push more towards unity, right? Like, let's stop Mm -hmm. dividing each other on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, on the basis of sexuality, whatever. And now it's like, what's left, right? So, so in mm-hmm. this very particular moment, it was like, well, let's let's divide ourselves between vaccinated and unvaccinated because we kind of, what else can we do? It's the thing that I was saying at the beginning of the of the podcast. In societies where everybody looks alike, you have to find something else to divide people, right? So if we're mm-hmm. in this, if we or if if we were moving or we were almost moving towards maybe a post-racial world, I'm not saying we're anywhere close to it, but we were kind of moving in that direction. And then it was like, mm, you know what? Um, let's, we have to find something else to divide people. So, so I don't know if I'm answering the question specifically, but I say, I want to say we're in this kind of moment now. And every time you, okay, we could take like, for example, feminism in the 1970s, when women 
particularly it was white middle-class women, you know, let's be mm-hmm. honest, but I mean, it, it went globally and, you know, internationally women from around the world were kind of saying enough, like, you know, we, we need to have laws on the books that represent us and so on. A lot of things happened in that era for women that had not mm-hmm. been happening historically. Um, and then of course there was backlash, right? So every time historically when we're trying, when we're moving somewhere, maybe progressively towards greater unity, towards greater harmony, there's always the backlash that comes. So what I, the way that I see it right now is it's going to dismantle, it will. But right now we're in the backlash moment. And the backlash comes from those people who are panicked by this, mm-hmm. right? They're, pa- they're panicked by it. They cannot imagine a world where you can no longer divide people on the basis of race. Um, they, a lot, there's a lot of people who cannot imagine a world where white people are not in charge, okay? Just like with the feminist movement, there were a lot of men who were freaked out, and some women, who were freaked out that men would men would not be in charge. You know, that women were gonna mm-hmm. be leading countries, that women were gonna be leading corporations, that women were gonna not be in the home, that women were gonna control their wombs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we're in that historical moment right now where black and brown people and beige and, you know, indigenous people like all over the globe are like, we're not, no, we're not taking this anymore. Like, this, mm-hmm. no, it's no. So in the middle of all of this, there is the reality that there's more and more and more multiracial people being born all the time. And that's why I'm saying eventually. However, as a person who studies this phenomenon, right, Mm -hmm. not not the birth rate of multiracial people, but the way that multiracial people identify, what I found, I found a couple of things that I find really, really interesting. And the first is the fact that the same kind of crap that a person like myself, and I'm now in my 50s, the same kind of crap that I was going through in the 80s and 90s as a young multiracial person in Canada, the same kinds of issues that I was dealing with, which were really of not feeling I could belong anywhere. I didn't have a tribe, okay? Mm -hmm. I didn't have uh, a place where I felt that I belonged. I'm still seeing this with young people today. So that's something Mm -hmm. that I have to, you know, perplexes me. I'm like, why are we still here? Why, mm-hmm. why is this young, young generation of people still in this quandary? So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is not everybody who's multiracial identifies as being racialized, right? Mm-hmm. That, that was an eye opener for me. I'll give you, I'll give you the story. So I had, um, I get interviewed by students a lot. We have a journalism school in our, in, in the university I teach it. And I had a young man contact me and said, I want to interview you about being mixed race. You know, I'm mixed race, blah, blah. I said, okay, cool. I've done this a million times, you know. And I was expecting a certain kind of interview. And we hadn't seen each other. Uh, He didn't come to my office. We did it over the phone. And about midway through the interview, he just asked this question. He said, so why is it that you think that so many people who are mixed race identify as white? (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and i I just went what and i said i'm sorry have you seen what i look like and he said um i I can't remember if he had or not and then i Mm -hmm. i was so blown away by the question right because my experience of people who are mixed race is that they tend to identify as as racialized they experience Mm -hmm. racism 
right? Mm -hmm. So it turns out he was a person who was Asian, like I'm not sure if it was Chinese or what, and white. Mm -hmm. And so he was saying that whether him himself or people like him were really trying to be white, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, this is this is something new for me, right? I guess maybe not entirely new, but I was I was a little surprised to hear that. So I thought, okay, and this is why we can't have the mixed race group, right? Like <laughs> yeah. the same way you say, uh -huh. well, here's the black people and here's the indigenous and. You can't because we all look different. We all come from different backgrounds. You know, some of us can only be racialized. There's no, is that person or aren't they? Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of us are kind of nondescript. And then there's some who could pass for white right. and, and choose mm -hmm. to, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so even though we can say, okay, so that my point being, it's more and more multiracial people being born, but that doesn't mean that they're, you know, we're all alike. Like it's going to be a group that is a group because it's not a group. Right. Right. Um, not to say that the other groups are groups either, because none of these, you know, I, I'm, I'm always harping on about there's no, you know, what is black? I mean, what is this category black? Black is so elastic as a category. Um, you know, when you talk about the black community, who are you talking about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, Yes, yes. No, you know, you 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 say something that um, that uh, that hits me on even a personal level. Um, you know, uh, even though I myself am, you know, my background, I'm Jamaican and I'm I'm black, but my my daughter um, is is mixed. My husband is uh, German Czechoslovakian, and you know, when she's born, she looks white, like everybody doesn't think that she's my daughter, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And she can easily, and she can easily, because I was like, how come this girl doesn't tan? <laughs> wow! Yes, yeah, like everybody's like everybody. Yes, it's a, it's amazing. Like you know, but of course, you know, in my background, you know, my my grandfather, um, uh, you know, is is only only half is only half black, and then you know, um, his father was like you know the a super white redhead uh, Irish man. Um, right. So uh, you know, it, it all is about the you know the gamble of the genes of how you turn out. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Um, and so you know, so she turned out looking like a, a very uh, white Irish girl. <laughs> wow. And so, and so you know, um, uh, yeah. And so you know, I I wonder. You know, she's still little and uh, doesn't uh, probably understand any of this stuff quite yet. Um, but you know, I wonder in the future. Um, if she does just decide to identify with white because that's what she looks like. I've heard yes. this actually, I heard this, um, uh, what you were saying, uh, as something I was reading uh, about uh, in, in America about uh, mixed um, uh, white and, uh, and Hispanic youth, um, because if they looked more white, they would just identify themselves mm -hmm. as white um, mm -hmm. because it just, yeah, you know, I would assume people are doing this because it's easier <laughs> in the society. Well, and I think we have to, we have to look at it. We have to be careful too, because we have to remember that it's not just how we ourselves want to identify. It's how we're identified. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if everywhere, like, let's say your daughter growing up, if, if everywhere she goes, people just treat her as white, assume she's white, maybe even get upset if she goes, actually, I'm half black, you know, or whatever, however she wants to define herself, or I'm a quarter black or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and people will say, well, you don't look it, you know, like, like people are really good at putting you in your place when it comes to race, you know, mm-hmm. they, they don't like when you are trying to question their perception of you. I, I'm just saying this, uh, you know, as a person who's experienced this my entire life, my entire life, right? That people are constantly trying to tell me who I am, what I am, what I should be, how I should identify. And, you know, it's it, for a child, especially that's really challenging, right? It takes a lot of strength and, you know, parents as well, I think who would support the child in that, but it's really difficult. Like I sometimes I just uh, uh, kind of crazy analogy I use um, for my students is like, you know, you can call yourself a purple, pink spotted hippopotamus all day long, you know, but if people don't see you as a purple, pink spotted hippopotamus, then it doesn't does it really matter. Right. If you how you want to define yourself. And that's the thing about race. Race is totally superficial. It's totally based on people's perceptions Mm -hmm. you know so people who are not clearly falling within these very specific racial categories and there's tons of us um you know it's kind of an everyday battle so you have to figure out you know well, what do i really want to do about this you know and i think a lot of it's just like you accept that people are going to think what they want to think and society is going to think what they want to think. And you have to decide for yourself who you are. That begs the question then as for parents, um, should parents discuss race with children? hundred percent, but not race in a bio, you know, and it's it like, well, you know, because these are the genes that, it, no, not that about the importance that the societies we live in place on race. And frankly, when I'm saying the importance, you know, and then poo-poo that and say, and it really doesn't matter a damn at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. What matters is your character. What matters is if you're a good person, right? So people are going to tell you, you know, that you belong to this group or you belong to that group or whatever. Um, but keep in mind that good people come in all shapes, sizes, and colors, and bad people come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. And, and, and I say this because I, I find sometimes, maybe not, I mean, well, I guess parents as well, but people in general who sometimes want to, you know, join a racial tribe or just be really tribal with the racial thing, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's so flawed. Because, I mean, there's an expression, you know, people use in Trinidad, which is chain up, which means to get, get your head, you know, so somebody can mm-hmm. um, kind of brainwash you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it means you take chain up. It means like if someone's telling you, you, you belong to this tribe and, you know, you need to represent for this tribe and this is your people and you got to be loyal to your people and they're going to be loyal to you. I mean, that's the quickest way to just get scammed by some, somebody from your tribe. Right. Mm-hmm. If you try to align yourself on the basis of race, good luck to you, because you're so busy looking at the superficial and assuming that just because this person looks like you, they are down for you. No. 
But I think I think we get caught up in that a lot in North America, especially, but in other parts of the world, too. Right. We really are like, no, you've got to be with your people who look like you as if as if that means anything. Like at the end of, you know, race is superficial. It doesn't mean anything. It does not tell me, for example, I can look at someone and say, well, they belong to X race. That doesn't tell me anything about them. What kind of person are you? What kind of morals do you have? What kind of values do you have? What kind of culture do you practice? What kind of language do you speak? What are your spiritual beliefs? How do you treat your children? Do you like dogs? Like nothing tells me nothing about you, except that you have this shade of skin, you have this texture of hair, you have these kinds of facial features. Yes. And, and when, I guess when, uh, especially when uh, people are talking about tribes and parents, and I feel um, there is a certain uh, difference, I could be wrong, um, but about how white parents deal with race versus parents of other racial backgrounds, um, sure. uh, when they are, um, you know, uh, I guess it's going to make it a two-part question. Um, So I guess when they are looking at race, maybe themselves, and then how they then um, deal with race, um, I guess, for uh, sharing or I'll call it, I guess, parenting um, with their children. Sorry, sorry. Can you say that again? Are you talking specifically about white parents now or parents in general? Uh, I'm talking about how uh, white parents deal with race versus parents of other racial backgrounds when it comes to parenting. Um, uh, I guess, do you see, uh, are there differences? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because, um, I mean, the first thing is white people in general, unless they've, they've specifically and consciously decided to do so, don't have to think about race. They don't have to think about it because it doesn't affect them because of white privilege, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are living in a society that is a white supremacist society, you just have an automatic pass as a white person uh, by by the virtue of having white skin and looking like you're of European descent, that gives you a kind of privilege, which means you don't have to think about things the way that racialized people have to think about them, okay? Because it doesn't affect you in those examples that I gave of like from the womb to the grave, you know, Mm -hmm. that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't happen to white people unless they're a white person who might be affected by some other kinds of marker of oppression, like poverty or disability or um, sexuality, you know, something where they are experiencing some kind of marginalization, despite the fact that they're white. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if they're a white person who's able-bodied and they're heterosexual, and especially if they're male, they get so much privilege, um, unearned privilege and unrecognized privilege because they don't even, they're not even aware of the privilege that they have, right? And it's only when they start to listen to racialized people about how different their experiences are in the society which is what has been happening a lot, right? I think like particularly 2020 and and Black Mm -hmm. Lives Matter and all these, where a lot of white people were finally going, that's what it's like for you? You know, or having to look at the horrific incidences, and it's hard to even call them incidences because there's been so many of them, of black people being killed, being Mm -hmm. killed by, you know, police um, just for being black, 
you know, I mean, how could you be white and not sit there and think about that, right? But the truth is these kinds of horrific instances have been going on since the beginning of colonialism because that is what happened to indigenous people and indigenous people are kind of erased in the United mm -hmm. States. I mean, in, in Canada, there's a much bigger conversation and public discourse about indigeneity, about, about indigenous people and what happened to them and what still happened, the fact that they're still there and the fact that we still have to deal with this, like this has to be addressed. But in the United States, that just seems to be kind of a, a, a disappeared conversation, right? So in yes. other words, this, this whole thing about race and racism has been going on for a very long time. Um, you know, and, and even when 9-11 happened and, and, you know, Islamophobia and the attacks on who were perceived to be Arabs, because a lot of people weren't, you know, mm -hmm. um, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. Um, right, right. No, I know, you know what you mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, it, but you know, this, so we go through these cycles where certain groups are suddenly front and center and they're in the spotlight and then they disappear and somebody else reappears. And I mean, what about Japanese that were rounded up and put mm -hmm. into concentration camps during the World War II? Like, are, you know, is this stuff being taught in schools? Are people having these conversations? Because sometimes I really wonder, because it's, it's still going on. Like we're still, we're still, we still have not overcome it. We still have not resolved it. Um, and it's good, I think, that we're talking about it. But I just feel like we've just now opened the door. You know, and, and as we were talking about just a, you know, a little while ago, as you were saying, you know, there's people who are really trying to close that door. Like there's a backlash, you know, and they're like, no, no, we're not we're not we're not going to stop holding on to race as a way to divide people. But yes. like I said, I think that when I was talking about tribes, I think what I was also getting at is that is that we ourselves as racialized people also participate in this. Right. When we also say um, we're going to build we're going to build uh, tribes or, you know, groups based mm -hmm. on on the exper our experiences of racism. Okay? Right. Like we're going to Such as like a, a like a, a indigenous people association or a black uh, or even maybe yes. even black lives matter or or something like sure, that. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I mean, these are these are all necessary. Like I'm not in any way saying, you know, racialized folks shouldn't organize. And yes, there is a real thing called anti-black racism that's specifically about the kinds of racism that black people specifically have faced and continue to face. All of that's really important. I think the problem is we have to recognize that these are organizations or tribes or, or groups that are formed to combat racism, but in and of themselves, there is no inherent bond on the basis of race. And I, and that's what troubles me because then people start to talk about race as if it's an actual identity. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was getting at. There's no, you know, one thing I'll, I'll say to my students all the time, I'll say, there's no thing as black culture, you know? And they're like, yes, there is, you know, Beyonce or something. And I'm like, that's not black culture, right? There's, that's a celebrity. You know, seriously, like, that, you know, or Cardi yeah, B or, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, Obama or, you know, and it's like, <laughs> no, like, first of all, let's, let's break down this thing called black you know, and who can be black and who can't. Okay, so right, oh, people of Africa. Well, you do know there's people in Africa that aren't, they don't, you're right, they're not dark skinned. Like, okay, okay, okay. So we're talking mm -hmm. about people who have this particular look, da, da, da. okay, fine. 
Do you really think that all the people who look this way in the world share the same culture? Do you really believe that? Because if you do, you're very uninformed, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes. you know, mm -hmm. there are black cultures if you, if you want to go there. But even more specifically, you know, I can't even begin to name. And this is the thing. When you do talk to people from the actual continent of Africa, or let's just take even West Africa, they'll be like, I'm not black. What are you, what are you, you know, I'm Igbo, I'm Kormanti, yes. I'm Ashanti, I'm, you know, they uh -huh. know who they are. They uh -huh. know who they are. It's not about their race or this thing called race. It's about ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's what I'm saying. So when we come back to this, these, these damaged societies we have over here in the Western Hemisphere, we have been taught and it's ingrained in us and in our parents and our grandparents that we're supposed to identify on the basis of race. And it doesn't make any sense. We are being identified on the basis of race. We are being treated differently on the basis of race. But all of that comes out of colonialism. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's race is not a basis for identity. One of the things that you brought up, um, and I think this is just important to highlight because I think sometimes people don't understand um, the difference, is what is the difference between race and ethnicity? Yeah, and 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 the way that I that I, I do this in class, I say, can you tell somebody's ethnicity by looking at them? Most of the time, the students by now <laughs> in the in the class will realize they better not say yes. Okay, let me think about this one. Uh, but, then, but then we have to break it down and say, well, yeah, sometimes you can. Okay, well, so if I see a woman wearing a hijab, I'm going to probably assume she's Muslim. Okay, so mm -hmm. if, yes, fine, we're going to see somebody wearing a crucifix. Oh, you're probably Christian. You know, somebody, a man wearing a yarmulke. Okay, you're probably Jewish. All right, fine. So we could say, you know, some people, there's some markers in clothing or headgear or whatever that tells us, you know, something you're wearing around your neck that tells us you belong to maybe a particular spiritual uh, or religion or whatever. But outside of that, and nobody's opening their mouths, nobody's speaking. Just when you just on site, can you tell me that you know that you will know for certain somebody's ethnicity by looking at them? No, you can't. What you're seeing is race. And race and ethnicity are not the same thing. Ethnicity is culture, ethnicity is your beliefs, ethnicity is the language that you speak, the kind of food that you eat. Um, you know, your, your traditions in your family. Um, sometimes race and ethnicity overlap, you know, in some very specific circumstances because the ethnic group that you belong to all happen to look exactly alike, mm -hmm. you know? So, but that's still not really race because there could be other people who look like your ethnic group that aren't of your ethnic group. So really and truly, you know, so ethnicity tells us a whole lot about people. Like once I know what your ethnicity is, then I'm, you know, then I have a better idea about who you are as a person, especially when it comes to things like beliefs and, and traditions and, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's kind of, to me, the basis of your, who you are as a human being. Race can't tell me any of that. So the people get it twisted. And that's like, you know, when we hear things like black culture, that's mm -hmm. twisting it up, you know? Uh, and I think, 
you know, to be honest, I think Americans are really good at that. I'm just going to say yes. it. And, I, yes. and the only yes. reason I'm saying it is because and Canadians will just swallow it wholesale, right? <laughs> America will be like, this is the way it is. And Americans are like, yep, facts, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes, that is true. I, you know, yeah. one of the things I think is because, you know, I think because a lot of people, um, I guess here's my Jamaican coming out from uh, out of me. Um, a lot of people don't know where they come from. <laughs> That's it. That's it. You know. That's it. Um, and so this is the way to say, you know, this is where I, this is how I can identify because I really don't know um, uh, where I come from because a lot of the people, because I think especially um, here in the Western hemisphere, um, one of the things even, you know, I'm an immigrant and uh, in, in coming to America, my parents were, um, you know, scared. Uh, and, you know, I spent the first few years, um, you know, learning how to get rid of my accent. Right. Yeah. My parents sent me sure. to school to get rid of it because they were like, oh, oh, we can't, you know, oh, no. Um, and so I think that's what happens here in the Western hemisphere, because everything has been uh, uh, pushed to uh, uh, an, uh, more of a, I guess you would say, a European or it's beyond European because even mm -hmm. Europeans have still culture, um, a lean <laughs> that we are all going to, you know, uh, uh, go to this one, um, uh, you know, generalized culture. And so your culture needs to be pushed away um, in mm -hmm. order to, I guess, have a, a, a way to survive. Um, at least that's how my, my family looked at it as like, okay, we, we've got to change some things so we can survive in changing yes. where we're living. Um, and so I think that's why, um, uh, from, you know, uh, in America, I think that's why a lot of people now, that's the only thing that they have to, I guess, uh, cling on to, I would say. <laughs> yeah. And, it, I, and I think, mm -hmm. I think that, I think part of the problem, sorry, I just want to jump in there. I mean, I, I think mm -hmm. if somebody says, oh, African-American culture, then I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Now I, I understand what you're saying because African-American, although that could be a racial category, I suppose, it mm -hmm. tells me something about who you are. It, it, it tells me that, first of all, you live in the United States, your, your people are from the United States, and probably that means that, and not exclusively, because we know there's a whole lot of divisions going on right now around this, but it probably means that your ancestors were enslaved Africans on plantations in the American South. And then perhaps at some particular juncture post-slavery, they may have migrated north if you're living in the north, or they remained in the south if your people were still from the south or whatever happened there. That's a very specific history. People should be proud of it. There's a whole lot of traditions that come out of that. That's great. But that is not what happens, because just as you were saying, you coming as a, a Jamaican child now have to assimilate and you have to figure out pretty quick. And if you look, quote unquote, black, then you have to now be African-American. But that's not your cultural history. That mm -hmm. wasn't your history. Your history was Jamaican history. And, and the reason I'm saying there's these divisions now is that there's greater and greater numbers of people from the African continent migrating to the United States. And then there's people who are the descendants of those enslaved people. And now they want to draw a line and say, hey, you people who are newly arrived Africans, you didn't go through what my people went through. So now, and I'm not, I can't remember the term, but there's that term about, you know, 
um, black descended from slavery as opposed to fresh off the boat African, right? Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, yes. like make, having to make this distinction. And, you know, I'm not mad at anybody for doing that because I think that's exactly what I'm saying. If you just paint everybody with the same brush, say, oh, we're all black. No, there's really important distinctions there. They're historical distinctions. They're cultural distinctions. I mean, to get really nitty and gritty with this, some of these people who might be migrating from Africa may have, their ancestors may have sold your ancestors into slavery. Mm-hmm. That's real. So, yeah. you know, let's talk about it because, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of the show Insecure. I watched Insecure. But what I didn't like in that show was that I saw there was an erasure Every character, every actor in that show, you know, at least in the in the lead cast, were people who were like second generation African, right? At least at least one parent. So like they were Nigerian or, or uh, I, I can't remember. I think it's Senegalese. Um, so, but their characters were only portrayed as African Americans, and I thought that's an erasure. Why did you do that? Why don't you portray who you really are as actors, right? Like, why are you trying to erase that particular uh, ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I found that interesting because it made it, I think, more mainstream and acceptable so that we could all just go, oh, yeah, you know, they're African-Americans, just like the Huxtables or whatever, right? You know, they're all just like, you know, we're, we, we know what that is, you know, good times, the Jeffersons, like it's African-Americans. <laughs> But they're not. They're right. not. Mm-hmm. And that's when you start to erase that, then, you know, that's problematic. Right, right. No, it's and yeah, and it's important. And I found, um, you know, even in my own journey is that I found, yeah, there's there is a, a, a difference. And then um, because, uh, you know, my parents didn't grow up here. You know, they mm-hmm. didn't understand some of the concepts other parents that were African-American understood. Yep. And, you For know, sure. and since they didn't understand those, those didn't get passed out to me. And then I was, you know, although my outside, I look black, um, I, I didn't understand uh, uh, African-American culture straight sure. because I had to I had to learn it learn it which is you right. know uh, uh which is then perplexing for people when they see me here in America that they you know uh say certain things and I didn't understand them sure um so yes I you know so I, I really think um uh that all plays a, a big part in uh, something that um, needs to be explored and uh celebrated a lot in society and speaking, I guess, of um, celebrations and one of the things uh, that's uh, popular, at least here in America, for I guess you would say, uh, quote unquote, woke parents, <laughs> yeah. is that they are concerned about introducing diversity into their children's lives. Um, do you think they should be uh, like people should really uh, try to go out of their way to introduce diversity or is that um or is that, uh, I don't want to use the word insult, but is that like, uh, is it not sincere? Okay, you need to define what you mean by diversity specifically. Um, uh, so when, uh, what happens um, with uh, a lot of uh, woke parents sometimes is that they're like, oh, you know, my 
Um, my child who is uh, white uh, only has white friends. It's time they go out. And now, you know, I'm going to start sending them to uh, a, a, a Chinese school so that they can start learning Chinese language or, you know, um, or I'm going to take them on the weekends over to the African-American community so that they can you know, <laughs> get to know uh, black children. You know, it, it sounds funny, but this is what, uh, you know, the, the, the woke uh, parents are trying to do. So you're talking um, I, about white parents. Yes, that, white parents. Why, okay. Um, so, yes, right. um, yes. Uh, that is, you know, it, it's something oh, okay. that actually is happening. And I, oh. um, the other day, actually, I was having a talk with a parent and they didn't want to send their uh, child to the local school because they said it wasn't diverse enough. So they wanted to search around for a school that had more diversity so that they were, you know, um, really building their child, uh, you know, preparing them for the real world. Um, yeah. So it is actually, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if I want to say a trend, but I guess maybe it's a trend or, uh, yeah, something that's been I, happening. I, I think, I mean, it really depends if it's if it's coming from a sincere place. And, and, and a, a, a sincere place to me would mean that you recognize that the world is diverse. You recognize that you're probably living in a bubble of white privilege and you want to ensure that your kid doesn't grow up only knowing that white privilege and that, you know, they should be interacting with, with people of different cultures and different races and so on, you know, to, to, to yes, to, to understand that this is indeed the world. And in fact, white people are a minority on this planet. So, you mm -hmm. know, that might be a good experience for that kid to be a minority for a change in the school that's, you know, heavily racialized, for example. But that's coming from a sincere place. And it also means that that parent would not feel threatened if their child loses that white privilege in, in a certain extent because they, be, they are the minority, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that's a good, that's coming from a good place. The parent who's doing it more like, let's take a tour of the ghetto on the weekend, you know, so like Bobby <laughs> can like see mm -hmm. black people in their native habitat or whatever, <laughs> or, you know, let's go to Pasadena and, you know, or Olvera street mm -hmm. or whatever. I'm trying to think of LA. Right. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so they can, so we can rub shoulders with the Mexicans and go in an authentic cantina and whatever, whatever, you know, that is not coming from the right place, obviously. That's more like, let's take an exotic tour, or it's like, let's go to the zoo and observe, you know, the animals in their native habitat from the safety of our SUV and then drive out of here, you know, with our windows up and the doors locked. No. So, you know, or, or even I think, you know, it, it becomes even more nefarious when we see people who are actually appropriating other people's cultures. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and then calling it diversity, like that's really, that's really um, not okay. Um, because we see, you know, pri privileged white people are doing this all the time. They do it with music, they do it with dances, they do it with food, uh, they do it with religion and spirituality. And they appropriate, um, of course, indigenous culture has just been raped, you know, mm -hmm. to the hilt because white, white people's fascination with that. But it's any culture, right? So... Um, so if it's also coming from a, a place like that, where it's all about, let's, let's, you know, oh, let's, I want my daughter to get her hair in boxer braids, you know, because the Kardashians are doing it. I mean, and, and, uh, the Kardashians doing it is a problem. I mean, the Kardashians are a great example of that, right? Like, you're, mm -hmm. that's not being diverse. That's just being a thief. 
So, and not, you know, acknowledging where the things that you're doing are coming from. So again, so I, I don't know if that answers the question. It's just, you know, where's the, where, where's the, um, the reason behind it? What is the purpose mm -hmm. for you wanting to do this? Is it coming from a place where that is truly about checking your privilege or is it coming from a place where you don't want to let go of any of that privilege and you just want to have an exotic experience, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and not lose any of that privilege that you did nothing to earn, frankly. Yes. And then I guess in, in this, I think one of the things that uh, parents, I guess any parent, not just the ones that are, you know, uh, uh, consider themselves socially, uh, conscious, um, but how do parents, I guess, from all races, confront their own racial bias? Yeah, that's that's a good one, because everybody has it, right? Mm -hmm. Let's not yes. let's not pretend, right? Right, right everybody, right, everybody has it, right? So, you know, and I think that's again. Um, well, first of all, I think there we would have to talk about stereotypes, and I I, I think probably the the place in popular culture where this is most evident is comedy it's still really acceptable for non-white comedians to make jokes about other races. It's for some reason that is still acceptable, but if a white person makes jokes about, well, I've seen some of them still do it and get away with it. But, you know, comedy kind of, it's an arena where you're kind of allowed to say these really offensive things and ha ha ha, okay, it's comedy. Um, mm -hmm. But but at the same time, a lot of what these comedians are saying, and I'm saying they can come, you know, whether they're Mexican or they're African-American or wherever they're coming from, what they're saying is coming from a true place. So you, you know, this is the place where you'll see black comedians making jokes about Chinese people and, and you know, Persian comedians making jokes about Indians. And, you know, like mm -hmm. it's kind of a, and that's where you see that, oh yeah, people got real prejudices against other groups and nobody's really calling other people on it. And I think at the end of the day, it comes back to a place, of, you know, it's like a pecking order under, under colonialism, the white person, and even let's take the plantation, you know, the white master was always at the top. And then it kind of went down by shade and the, the lighter you were, the higher up this, pyramid you were and then it got darker and darker and you know the darker you were and the and the less the the less uh the less you had access to any kind of power was mm -hmm. how far down this pyramid you were so if you were somewhere in the middle you always had somebody to pick on you were being picked on but you, you there was somebody below you that you could pick on so we mm -hmm. continue to do this right we continue to do this to each other and not recognize that who's really holding power at the end of the day Right. So if we're bickering amongst each other, let's say, as, as people who are affected by racism, are we really looking at why all of us are still being oppressed by a power structure that none of us can seem to overcome? You know, and in other words, why aren't we looking at the our, our what we have in common as opposed to our differences? So I think that's the first thing. This is really directed at racialized parents right mm -hmm. is that if you're a racialized parent and you're still saying you know racist things about other groups um and I'm, I'm not including whites in this for a very particular reason but i'm saying if you if you have racism against chinese or indians or whatever you know you need to stop and look at where is that coming from 
Where's that coming from? Because at the end of the day, we're all being screwed over in this racist system. So, you know, and is it coming out of a particular stereotype? Can you really say that, you know, whatever the negative stereotype that you particularly hold against a group is true for every single person from that group? No, that's impossible. So, you know, check, check those ideas. But I think, and this is why I said, if it's a racialized parent and they have particular ideas about whites, white people, that's coming out of a different place. That's not just that, well, white people are, you know, whatever. It's coming out of a place of that has to do with power mm-hmm. and who has and who has power. So I think it's important to acknowledge that as well, that there is something called white power in the society. And it's not that, you know, I guess it's it's kind of like it's not about don't you know, I don't like white people because X, Y, Z. It's about I don't like white supremacy because X, Y, Z. So it's not about people. It's about mm-hmm. a system. Right. It's the same as, you know, if someone is a, you know, a woman or women who are upset about patriarchy. Right. As a right. as a system of power and, and mm-hmm. someone will come along and say, you all hate men. And it's like, no, <laughs> we don't hate men. We hate mm-hmm. patriarchy. There's a difference. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one way that you can teach your children. It's like hate the power structure that's about inequality and oppression. Don't hate people who maybe are benefiting from that, but, you know, let's not make this personal. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, for white, for white parents, the first thing that all white people need to do in regards to racism is recognize what white privilege is. The first thing you have to understand that as a white person in these societies, you have so much privilege that you're not even aware of, right? And, you, and, you know, mm-hmm. unless you can do that, then you can't really go any further than that. You know, it's all, it, anything you do is going to be superficial. You really have to understand how much power you have just on the basis of your white skin. Right. That yeah. that opens so many doors for you that you didn't even know, like, that are close to other people. Right. So, you know, and so many things and even even a particular lifestyle that you might be able to live because your ancestors benefited from this. And again, you're not even aware. And you might assume that it's just this way for everybody. And then, of course, it's very easy to assume that people who don't have that level of privilege, well, they did something wrong. They were lazy, they were stupid, they had too many kids, they were on drugs, you know. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's their fault. But somehow you and your people did things right. No. That's not what happened here, right? And at the same time, I mean, that's not to say that every white person has the same level of privilege, right? Because as I yeah. said, you know, some some white people come from generations of poverty. Um, mm-hmm. You could be a white person who's living with a disability and that totally changes your white privilege, like right. hugely, you know? Um, yeah. Yes. Thank you for bringing up those those points, because I think that that you answered the argument um, that happens a lot that I see from uh, uh, white. A lot of white people is like, well, wait just a moment. So, um, you know, thank you for answering those points. 
Um, the uh, I just have two more questions for you. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to touch on uh, uh, this topic. Uh, I'm going in a, a different direction on uh, social media, just because um, uh, it is uh, uh, a big, um, it's playing out big right now in society because of Facebook's change over to Meta and, you know, uh, the direction that they are uh, possibly, uh, or I won't even say possibly, the direction that they're going <laughs> with their platform and, you know, what that uh, may mean for the world and how we interact. Of course, it's, you know, um, not uh, fully in effect yet, but yeah. I think if we start to examine and, uh, you know, start to peel the layers, um, I think uh, it is definitely taking us to a different level um, than we have experienced social media uh, currently. And so one of the things is because social media is uh, a big factor around the world. Um, I know that uh, only because a lot of the projects that I work on, uh, one of the biggest uh, platforms that uh, uh, some of the poorest countries uh, utilize is social media because it is free. Um, and so... I believe social media has a, a big effect on youth um, just because we have seen, uh, you know, the unfortunate uh, things that happen sometimes when kids are uh, uh, bullied and, you know, uh, can't handle it anymore. We've seen people, you know, die, unfortunately. Um, so I guess, how do you think that social media plays in defining race and um, sense uh, self-identity? I know that you did a, a project um, or a, a documentary um, um, in the past, um, uh, posting for peace. Uh, and I wanted to kind of get your, uh, personal, um, thoughts on that. Yeah. I, I think, uh, social media has the potential to be the great equalizer. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by the fact that the way in which social media can democratize access to messaging, and um, for something like identity, it's just a brilliant platform, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, you were just talking about Facebook and Meta and these, you know, and that's based in the United States and then TikTok, which is based in China and these different platforms that are still, you know, out of the hands, um, still controlled, you know, by, by sort of world power. So we, we have to call China world power now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and all the time we're hearing about people being banned from TikTok for whatever. So someone is still, you know, deciding who gets access and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I would love to see more and more platforms emerging. And I, I absolutely think this is going to happen from other parts of the world. Like I want to see a platform get really big on the African continent and, you know, the same thing in Latin America and, and the same thing in the Caribbean where we can have our own um, platforms that are that we control, right? You know, and at the same time, we can be engaging in these other multi-billion, you know, participant platforms. But when it comes to discussions around race, and that's why I'm such a fan of TikTok, because um, I guess my algorithms bring me these kinds of things, right? Uh, I'm seeing these amazing conversations going on. There's no other way these could have been taking place without a platform like TikTok. So, so for example, like some of the things we've been talking about today, I am seeing Black Americans being taken to task by 
by black skin people around the world who are like, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I'm not black. You don't know who you are. Let me tell you about race. Your perception of race is not global. It's not universal. This is how I see myself and there's nothing wrong with it. This is how in my country we do things. Like I'm listening to these conversations and I'm just blown away because everybody gets to have a say. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like the Americans have a bigger TikTok platform or no, there's somebody in, you know, Uganda who made a TikTok you know, today, and like two seconds later, somebody from the Dominican Republic is going to respond to them. And they're all um, stitching this person in the United States who made a comment. And like, you know, within minutes or seconds or days, you know, 200 people have come for this American. And so the American voice is no longer the dominant voice. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Because for generations, the American voice has been the dominant voice. And it's not like, okay, let's exchange the, the American voice for the Chinese voice. No. As long as you have access to social media and you have access to TikTok, it doesn't matter. And you can make a good TikTok and your response is, you know, you don't have to have the right ring light or whatever. You know, you just said your piece. And people are like, yeah. And those conversations are priceless. Priceless. And it makes people think. You can see the wheels turning. You can see people are like, hey, I never thought of that. I learned something today, you know? But listen mm -hmm. to this girl over here who's in Tanzania, you know? And then they'll show you Tanzania and they'll talk about Tanzania and the history of it. And, you know, everybody's getting schooled on TikTok. Amazing. <laughs> I love it. No, it's, it's like, how else could that happen? I used to fantasize about having, you know, international online classrooms. Mm -hmm. Well, you could have the student in Tanzania and the person in Uruguay and the person in, you know, Greenland or whatever. But that can't really work because we're all in different time zones. Yes, yes, yes. We couldn't all literally sit in the classroom together and have these discussions. But mm -hmm. we can have these discussions on TikTok. And although TikTok is full of a whole lot of crap, and we know that, right? A whole lot of mm -hmm. talking or whatever. There's this side of TikTok that is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing and it's educational and it's, of course, it's a lot of youth and it's a lot of youth who are intelligent and they have intelligent things to say and they're not afraid to say them and they're not afraid to challenge others about their perceptions of the world and the people in it. And that's, like I said, to me, that's just fantastic. Hmm. I, I love the perspective that you've given because, you know, I I didn't even um, uh, think that far into social media, how it is um, allowing, uh, you know, everyone to have a different type of uh, global conversation. And I guess in a way, or uh, I don't even have to say in a way, but uh, showcasing the truth of uh, the real experience um, that people are, um, uh, you know, living um, in the areas that they are. And it's not just, you know, what we, uh, you know, put people in, uh, you know, a stereotypical box. So, um, so people um, can actually see that, oh, it's actually, it, it's, it's, it's different <laughs> than what I thought it was. So yeah, although, uh, although I'm yeah. realizing mm -hmm. now, as I'm saying this, the one, of course, the one um, defining factor for all those people is that they were all speaking English. 
right? Uh-huh. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I'm not saying that that doesn't happen on TikTok, and I think it does from time to time. There'll pe- there will be people who might use captioning translation, you know, to say what they have to say in in English because of course English becomes that universal language. Um, but I, that's not to say that the same TikTok would have reached people who weren't English speaking or or literate in English would be able to to participate in that conversation in the same way. And that's a that's problematic, right? Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. a start. It's yes, a start. it is a start. Yeah, it is a start. Um, and then my last question is, uh, um, let's see here. Uh, what uh, do you think that, uh, what do we do to help uh, children, uh, young children and their families uh, develop uh, res- uh, resiliency in this current social climate? Um, okay, can you define current social climate? Because I just feel like we've been in <laughs> current social climate forever, <laughs> forever. <laughs> yes, I guess. Uh, I guess. Um, I guess uh, when I'm saying current uh, social climate, I mean, um, you know, yes, uh, we have a long history of uh, of uh, dealing uh, with the issue of race. Um, but I think uh, from the year 2020 um, till okay. and its current thing that we are now um, we're being forced. I call it the time of uh, sifting. Like right now we are being sifted um, to see what is important to us and what are we going to do about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I think this is the time. I think that uh, as I call it, the decision making time, time to take actions and time for serious reflection. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. I got you now. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you repeat the question, please? Um, so what should we do to develop uh, resiliency in young children and their families in this, uh, you know, the current social climate? Well, I think that's a good start. What you're saying there is I think a lot of us have spent the last two years really, um, you know, <laughs> contemplating what's what's most important to us, what really matters at the end of the day. And so I just think that, you know, that should that should be passed on to children is like, you know, what's what needs to be valued? What's what's important and what isn't? And, you know, um, what are the things that you should not be? You know, sorry, if my dogs are getting a little noisy. Um, quiet. What are the things that you should be, you know, putting your energy towards or, or, you know, for example, I mean, I'm thinking of children can get caught up in all kinds of popular culture trends and TikTok's a part, you know, a part of that. Um, but I'm also thinking of, you know, little girls who might be concerned about their weight or, you know, whether they're popular or, you know, boys might be concerned about if they have muscles, I don't know, like, you know, these are small things, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's for parents, and that depends who the parents are and what the family's values are and so on. But to really, you know, say, let's say it's a family that says family is really important and, and spending time with the ones you love is really important. So, you know, we're going to make that effort to make sure that we go and see grandma, you know, that we, we stay in contact with our family, that we do family things together and family activities, because I think like a lot of people realize, you know, work was taking up a lot of people's time. And then all of a sudden you're working from home and then you're like, wow, why can't I have more of this family time? This is like really precious, especially when you kind of feel death is right there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like let's make the most of it. So that's another thing. Life is short, you know, make the most of it, make every day count. 
Um, for some people, it might be reconnecting with their roots. I, I, I was interviewed, I don't know, last year sometime, you know, about that, how some people during the pandemic were reconnecting with their ethnic roots and learning about their history and how to cook the foods and do the dances and stuff. So that could be something as well, you know, like let's get, you know, reconnect with our ancestry and our cultural traditions and those kinds of things. So, um, and I think that's, that's, that to me is incredibly important for resiliency is again, it's knowing who you are, whatever that means to you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Knowing who you are, knowing who your people are, knowing where you're, where you, you know, it might be a connection to land, like territory or a place. It might be collection to, a connection to something spiritual, you know, but whatever it is, once you have that connection to something that is bigger than you and beyond the sort of superficial relationships that we tend to have, it's it's got to be something bigger than that because you have to have something like that to fall back on when things get really, really crazy out there, which they have, you know, <laughs> yes. they have. And, and, you know, it's like this, it's a, it was a real sw sink or swim. I, I say was, because I kind of feel like maybe we're coming out of it. Um, a real sink or swim time. And, you know, people had to find something to hold on to. And so that's, you know, I would encourage children to find that. And, and again, that's, you know, I think a very personal thing um, for some families, it will be, it will be spiritual. It will be like, you know, this is where you go, you go and you pray and, and here's traditions and maybe you, you want to do your own, you know, it doesn't have to be our family tradition, you know, connection with the divine. Right. Um, or it could be, you know, knowing that your family is there for you, no matter what, or knowing that we come from this you know, ethnicity, these are our people, this is our land, and this is who we are, and having that as some kind of grounding, grounding and connection. Um, yeah, those kinds of things. Because, you know, we, we live in a culture that's really superficial, and people are encouraged to identify with all kinds of stupidity, and that's not going to sustain you, you know? Mm -hmm. Loyalty to a sports team or to a brand of clothing or you know, a social media app like Instagram and, you know, the kinds of um, identities that people portray on social media that are very manufactured, you know, that's, that's, that's not going to sustain you. So it's got to go deeper. Yes, I 100% I agree. Um, this has uh, definitely been a time of uh, uh, testing of people's values. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And like I said, sink or swim, you know, and, and I, I, I hope that people who started this, uh, not, you know, since 2020 started without that, were able to develop it. Um, and then those of us that had something prior to, you know, it, it was just a testament, I think, to, to how important that is. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, um, uh, Dr. Hernandez-Ramnar, um, for your time and insight. If you'd like to learn more about uh, Camille, go to H-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z-R-A-M-D-W-A-R at gmail.com. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.work 
to start your project of change today. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters. 